In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here with the 341st episode of the Bowtie Chronicles podcast. Normally, it's everything you need to know about the Atlanta Falcons, but today we have a special guest, Arthur Jason Reed. He's going to come and discuss with us his new book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. Jason, welcome to the Bowtie Chronicles podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, D-Led. Thanks for having me. Yeah, could you tell the folks about uh, your project, uh, you know, what led to uh, writing the book and just how, how it went for you and so forth? Yeah, you know, back in 2019, I went to my bosses at ESPN, my editors, and I said, it just seemed to me that this was going to be a different year, actually, the, the two, yeah, 2019 season, that it was just going to be a really different year because there seemed to be so many superstar black quarterbacks in the league, and I wanted to like focus on that the whole season. And as it turned out, Lamar Jackson won the AP MVP award, became only the second quarterback in the history of the league other than Tom Brady to be a unanimous winner. Patrick Mahomes won the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl MVP award. Kyler Murray was the AP Rookie of the Year. Deshaun Watson had a great year. Dak Prescott had a great year. Russell Wilson had a great year. So it just turned out that, you know, black quarterbacks had risen to a point and had become more successful than they ever had been in the history of the league. And it also happened to be the 100th season of the NFL. So those two things, you know, really kind of lined up nicely. And after the season, I was approached by a couple of book agents, literary agents, about writing a book on the, the series. And I just kind of expanded on it and looked at not just one year, but the history of the NFL and the history of black quarterbacks in it. Yeah, no question about it. And it uh, was a big year. And, and I think, you know, I looked, checking out the book, you did a great job on the historical perspective. Uh, a lot of folks are unfamiliar with Fritz Pollard, uh, you know, uh, Marlon Briscoe, the 12-year band, and you, you do a great job in the book of covering all that. Um, you know, we, uh, we won't, you know, have time to do all that here, but certainly wanted to talk about Michael Vick yeah. uh, in Atlanta and the role, you know, he played coming up. Of, and we'll double back to Randall Cunningham because you had some good passages in the book about Randall Cunningham also. Uh, but Michael Vick was an important figure in in this. Um, in this, could you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, D-Led. Uh, Michael Vick, first black quarterback selected number one overall in the NFL draft, two thousand and one. Uh, listeners, listeners of this podcast obviously know that you know he he went to the Falcons, number one overall. And you know, Michael Vick, I, I remember talking to somebody about him once, a uh, a longtime player in the league. He said Michael Vick plays unapologetically black. Like he, when he stepped on the field, you know, whatever anybody had to say about like how quarterbacks were supposed to play, he played with a swagger that you really just did not see up until that point. 
I mean, even the other black quarterbacks in the league, yeah, Randall Cunningham, the ultimate weapon, Warren Moon had a great career, Doug Williams, first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Like, Michael Vick played like a, a, like a player who you knew had such a distinct style that the way he did it, it was just different. And, you know, had Michael Vick went on to have, you know, a great run in Atlanta and, and you know, did things that we really hadn't seen from that position. Yeah, he was a dual-threat quarterback. Randall Cunningham was a dual-threat quarterback. But Michael Vick was just different. He, he's just like, you know, he's like a swashbuckling pirate out there, you know. I mean, for you just – the way he played, it was just – it was just – such flair, such drama in his game, just the way he moved and the way he, you know, he uses athleticism to to elude defenses and the arm strength that he had. So, you know, Mike Vick really moved the ball forward because him being drafted number one overall by the Falcons, it was an acknowledgement by the league that, okay, times really had changed because he wasn't the prototypical 6'3", 220-pound guy who just stayed in the pocket. He played outside of the pocket. You know, you could talk about the criticism Mike Vick got in his career for, you know, taking off from the pocket, but he was such a weapon in, in the way he was able to move. And, you know, Mike Vick, nobody had a stronger arm than Mike Vick. I mean, Mike Vick had a cannon for an arm. So the things he did after being the number one overall draft pick, and obviously, you know, we, we know what happened uh, with, with his career in Atlanta, and then he has this career renaissance when he goes to the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, I remember I, I used to cover the uh, Washington Commanders for the Washington Post, and I remember, you know, when Vic came back and when he got the starting job, there was this Monday night football game in, in Washington, D.C., where he's going against Donovan McNabb, who was, you know, the, the Eagles' former quarter. And Mike Vick, I mean, it was 35 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. It was just, I mean, just an incredible offensive display. And, you know, Mike Vick, by the time he got to Philadelphia, he wasn't the same as he was in Atlanta, but he still had a lot left. And he really, you know, among the black quarterbacks, especially the younger guys now, you know, the, the guys now, like the Lamar Jacksons of the world, they remember watching him and they remember playing with him, you know, uh, on, on Madden. You know, they remember playing, you know, with, you know, his, with the Falcons and what Vic did. So such a huge figure in everything for black quarterbacks. Yeah, and uh, you discussed that in the book, the the uh, touchdown, the bomb to uh, that went 61 yards in the air to Deshaun Jackson and how that just started everything off there. Um, also, you talked about his uh, influence. And of course, we know it here in Atlanta. I mean, I was coaching Little League then. Everybody's quarterback was number seven. You know, direct products of that, Cam Newton, Deshaun Watson. Uh, you talked about uh, Jason Wright. Uh, D'Angelo Hall, some of his former teammates, and how he also influenced them. Uh, but uh, let's move on to Randall Cunningham. Randall was before him, and, you know, we're not going to, you know, you got to get the book to find out about Marlon Briscoe, Willie Thrower, Eldridge Dickey, uh, James Harris, Doug Williams, uh, Fritz Pollard, the 12-year van. But, um, Jason, uh, Randall Cunningham is a guy that you felt – uh, you know, set out a year, came back, had another great uh, second half to his career and probably belongs in Canton uh, is what you say. Uh, he should be there. Make the case for uh, Randall Cunningham and tell our listeners why he's such an important figure in the um, evolution of the black quarterback in the professional uh, game. Well, D-Led, the, the NFL had never seen anything like Randall Cunningham. I mean, he, he's a he's a second-round draft pick 
to the Philadelphia Eagles out of uh, University of Nevada, Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a you know, very good quarterback, but Nevada, Las Vegas is a football powerhouse in college football. He, he was a punter there, and he was also you know, a quarterback. And the thing is, is that he gets to Philadelphia, and when he, when he becomes the starter, he does things that the NFL just never had seen. I mean, in the chapter on, on Randall Cunningham, I opened a chapter talking about, I had a conversation with Carl Banks, the former great outside linebacker with those Bill Parcells teams, you know, that, with the New York Giants. And it was a Monday night game, and the Giants were playing the Eagles. And Carl Banks was a great football player, okay? Carl Banks hits Randall Cunningham. And any other quarterback would have been broken in half, been on the field. He, but he hits him. Randall Cunningham puts his hand on the, on the turf, balances himself, okay? He should have been down. This should have been a sack. Pops up and throws a touchdown. The NFL just hadn't seen anything like this before. I mean, he was so athletic, so agile, so able to, to do things with his legs and his arm that he was dubbed the ultimate weapon. That was his nickname, you know. And, and like, the, the thing about him is Randall had a great career in Philadelphia. He didn't have playoff success. And, you know, playoff success, obviously the quarterback g gets too much of the credit and too much of the blame when things go bad. But unfortunately for Randall, unfortunately for the Eagles, you know, they'd have these great regular seasons, but then they couldn't get it done in the playoffs. And, you know, Randall winds up, you know, retiring, leaving Philadelphia. And after all of the success he had, you know, he wanted another, he wanted to give it one more shot. And he goes, he goes back, has a great run with the, with the Minnesota Vikings. They have a fabulous season, but they lose to who? The Atlanta Falcons, okay? Um, the, and, and it was the season, that, the, the season that he had, I mean, the, the Vikings were just incredible. They were this offensive machine. You know, Chris Carter, a rookie Randy Moss, Robert Smith, the running back. I mean, they were putting up points left and right, and everybody thought they were going to go to Super Bowl. But that Falcons team beat them. And, you know, if Randall had gotten to that Super Bowl that year and if the Vikings had won, I think there would have been a much stronger – I think many people would have felt, okay, like maybe he does belong in the Hall of Fame. You know, when you combine his statistics, if he could have just gotten that, that ultimate team success, but he fell short of that. And, you know, the only black quarterback enshrined in the Hall of Fame right now is Warren Moon. I think that's going to change. I think when, when this when, – you know, Russell Wilson will be in there. And as this, you know, current crop gets older, but that's several years down the line, d -Lay. Yeah, no question about it. Jason, I know we're going to be running out of time here. Uh, can you tell the people about the 12-year ban? People were like, what? People were banned from playing? They were banning uh, black quarterbacks in the National Football League? Share with us about that. Yeah, black – yeah. Yeah, do you let black players in general? I mean, you know, black players were in the league at the beginning back in the, back in the 1920s. Uh, Fritz Pollard was the, the first black – Player, first black star player, first black head coach, first black quarterback. I mean, he lined up at quarterback, even though it doesn't look like quarterback looks now. But the bottom line is, is that as the league, you know, got into the 30s, you had the Great Depression in America. You had the emergence of Red Grange, the, the great, you know, white star out of Illinois. And the league didn't want to have black players anymore. The feeling was, well, if, if jobs are so scarce, why are we giving jobs to black men over white men? That was the feeling that, that, you know, that's the way NFL owners looked at it. And additionally, 
the league really wanted to cater to white fans. They wanted to, you know, court white fans. And Red Grange was a white superstar. So they didn't need these black guys. That was the thinking. So for 12 years, you don't see a black player in the NFL from 1934 to 1946. And, you know, when questioned about it later, executives would say, well, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't anything racial. You know, we, there just weren't any that were good enough, which is insane, okay, obviously, which is a, a flat-out lie, obviously. Um, but, yeah, reintegration comes when the Cleveland, then the Cleveland Rams wanted to move to Los Angeles and play in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, and the, the, the Negro press, as it was known back then, you know, like sports writers were really at the front of this movement because they were like, no, like if the Rams want to come and use this public facility, they need to have an integrated team. No, that, 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 that's, that's not going to happen. That's wrong. And so uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode from UCLA, uh, they were the first two black players in reintegration. And then um, in, with the, with the uh, excuse me, the, the, I, I, did I say Los Angeles Rams? Rams. Yes. Did I say Cleveland Rams? Okay, and then Browns. and then the Cleveland Browns in the other in the other pro league at the time, uh, Paul Brown, the head coach, Motley. he brought in Marion Motley and Bill Willis. So those were the four players who reintegrated major professional football in the United States. Yeah, and just wrapping up here, Jason, uh, the title, what it means for America. Share share with the listeners what this does mean for America: the rise of the black quarterback. Well, the NFL is the most popular and successful league in the country, most powerful league. Quarterback is the, is the number one position. It's the most important position in team sports. And for most of NFL history, quarterback was the exclu exclusive domain of white players because the white team owners and executives and coaches thought that black men were just inherently inferior and not smart enough, not, not tough enough to play the top position. So what the rise of the black quarterback means for America Quarterback is a uniquely American leadership position. When you think about corporate America and, and the, the person who leads a project in corporate America and, and a, a big project for a company, well, he's the quarterback of that team on the project. When you think about uh, your medical care, you, you, you have a big procedure, you, you, your doctor, your doctor is your quarterback. He's got to get you through that. When we think of quarterback, we think of the smartest person in the room, the most capable, the best leader, the most masculine, everything that's wrapped up in that. So the rise of the black quarterback really coincides with the rise of black people in America in, in the last century in this one. And what it shows is, is that when black people can ascend to that type of a job, it starts to change perceptions about what black people can do in any field, not just in the NFL. You know, when Doug Williams won that Super Bowl in 1987 and became the MVP, when people went back to work that next day, white people too, like, wow, we know, you know, didn't know a black man could do that. And so what it did was it, the rise of the black quarterback changed perception in this country, and that, and that change permeated many other things in the country. And when you see people get opportunities, black people get opportunities, not just black people, but black and brown people, any marginalized group, historically marginalized group, it shows that anyone can rise up with ability and with, and, and with skills and contribute to the fabric of this country. So the rise of the black quarterback coincides with the, with the rise of black people in this country, and it shows what can be accomplished. Thanks for coming on the Bowtie Chronicles podcast. I highly recommend the book. I've been waiting for it. Uh, when it came in the mail, I ripped open the package and started digging in, and 
I uh, wanted to get Jason to come on and uh, discuss it with us. I know, you know, I've been covering NFL for a while. Uh, I covered Aaron Brooks, who was Michael Vick's cousin. Mm-hmm. Michael Vick, coach, covered him. Dominic Davis was a, a black quarterback from Eastern Carolina. And then I covered Jason Campbell uh, when he uh, took Auburn to that 13-0 season as our SEC, ACC writer. But, yeah, it certainly uh, has changed. The playing field's changed. We've talked about it with general managers and the executives around the league. Uh, you know, and, and we'll see how – things proceed here in the future with uh maybe the the league having a uh you know a wider scope and wider view of the position so with that we're gonna thank jason for coming on and uh hope you all enjoy what he had to say about his book rise of the black quarterback what it means for america on this special edition of the bowtie chronicles podcast thanks for joining us Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.